It seems hard to believe that the last time I was on this stage introducing our speaker was almost seven years ago. At that point, he was retiring as president of the VHS, and I was assuming that role. And that evening, I described this as bittersweet. Well, I'm glad today to say this is a sweet day, not a bittersweet day. And although I'm introducing, I think introducing our, speak to, our speaker to this crowd may be superfluous, I'm still going to do it just in case there's one or two of you who doesn't know our speaker's background. The pride of McMinnville, Tennessee, Charles F. Bryan Jr., or Charlie, as most everyone knows him, is a graduate of VMI, University of Georgia, and University of Tennessee, where he received his PhD in history. After service in the U.S. Army, Charlie made his career in the field of public history, serving as executive director of the East Tennessee Historical Society and the St. Louis Mercantile Library, before being named president and CEO of the Virginia Historical Society in 1988. When Charlie retired from the VHS in 2008, he left an organization utterly transformed. From a relatively exclusive, private, learned society, he led it to a place at the very forefront of American historical institutions. Under his leadership, the VHS expanded in every way imaginable, physically, programmatically, and in its public profile. I dare say many of you in this room first visited the VHS because of something that Charlie Bryan did here. And indeed, the fact that you are all here for this banner lecture today shows you how fitting it is that this lecture series is in honor of Charlie Bryan. And the wing in which we sit is the Charles F. Bryan Jr. Home for History wing. You may also know that Charlie is enjoying a productive and very healthy retirement, if you can call retirement uh, retirement when you see what he's doing. He's busier than a lot of working people I know. Since leaving the VHS, Charlie founded Brian and Jordan Consulting, which specializes in strategic planning, fundraising, board and staff relations, and executive searches for nonprofit and higher educational institutions. And of course, he's become a regular contributor to the Richmond Times-Dispatch. And the new book, Imperfect Past, History in a New Light, is a collection of his newspaper columns. Today marks that book's launch. And in the shameless commerce section of this talk, I will mention <laughs> it is for sale at our shop. <laughs> now, in a bit of a break from our normal format, Charlie and I thought it might be interesting to forego a formal lecture in favor of a conversation about the many topics and themes in Imperfect Past. So that's why you see this unusual setup, why I'm not hidden behind a podium. I will ask some questions, and Charlie will wax eloquent in reply. I think it's going to be a lot of fun, and I hope you enjoy it. And on a personal note, I think I speak for many of us in this room, and certainly I speak from my own heart. I owe a great deal to Charlie, and we all owe a great deal to Charlie. So it's a, a real privilege. Yes? It's a real privilege, and I ask you to join me in a warm welcome to the stage, a welcome home to Charlie Bryan. Thank you, Paul. Thank you so much.
Charlie, you, you wanted to start off with a few yes, acknowledgments. Paul, I've got to commend you and the staff for helping move this place uh, even beyond what I was able to do. And it's so exciting to see the changes, the new entrants, and the programs that you have going. So congratulations. Thank to you, you very much. Thank you. I must say my best friend and partner, uh, my wife Cammie, is not with us today. She was diagnosed recently with cancer, and um, her doctors advised that she not be here today. But she is here in spirit, and we're uh, taping this. We're taping this. So everyone, wave hi to Cammie. <laughs> But uh, we're, we're hoping for the best for, for her. I want to acknowledge some people um, who have been so helpful in the production of this book. First and fo foremost are the members of the staff of the Richmond Times-Dispatch, particularly president and publisher Tom Silvestri, who not only agreed to let me write pieces for the Times-Dispatch, but agreed to let, us do, uh, let me do the book. And as a matter of fact, Tom wrote a wonderful forward, and I very much appreciate that. And, Another person on the Times-Dispatch staff is Bob Rayner, who is my contact person and reads and edits my essays, and I, I want to acknowledge him as well. And certainly I want to acknowledge my good friend Wayne Dementi of uh, Dementi Milestone Press. Wayne, you've been great to work with, and I, I can say I'm very pleased with what you, you have done with this book, and uh, thank you very much for that. I know I run the risk of leaving people out, but uh, I, I particularly wanted to commend them. And, and again, it's good to be back. Well, it's great to have you. Uh, let's kick off with a question that I think kind of gets to the heart of the topic, the stated topic of yeah. this talk. And that is that many prominent commentators argue that history is in trouble in America. But you seem to reject that premise. Why do you reject that premise? Well, uh, David McCullough, for example, said we in our time are raising a generation of Americans who uh, are, are alarmingly illiterate. And uh, Lynn Cheney, the former chairman of the National Endowment for the Humanities and the wife of the former vice president, has said that we are again raising a generation of Americans who don't understand their history. And I could give you dozens of quotes. But when you think about it, is that the, the, the argument is that it's a growing problem and that it is uh, an emerging problem. And that assumes that those of us or who are older, or who were educated, and that earlier generations knew history better than the current generation. Now, how do you prove that? You take the 1950 census of the United States. 40% of the American population did not have a high school degree. Less than 10% of the American population in 1950 had a college degree. Today, more than 90% of our people have a high school degree, and close to a third of the population has a, a college degree. Now, do they know history? I, I can't say they know it any less or better, but that kind of confounds me. And you think about this. I know when I was, I, I grew up in a small town in Tennessee, and um, I was taught history, and I can't say that it was all that good. You know, there was a standing joke in the 50s and 60s that one half of the history teachers in America had the same first name. You know what it was? Coach. And I had a coach for a football team, and I loved history, but his class was deadly boring. 
and it was facts and dates, and to him, history was, we would get him off the subject and talk about last week's football game. <laughs> and I had the audacity to say, Coach, I think it's pronounced Crimean War, not Crimean War. <laughs> Coach Sparkman wasn't very happy about that. So can we say history was taught better um, in, when we were growing up for many of us? I don't think so. And I, I, here at the Virginia Historical Society, we had teachers' institutes and, and many wonderful teachers who came through here. And I would have loved to have had them um, for, uh, a history, uh, for history class in high school. Brought in a couple of props. Any of you remember these golden stamp books? This is the one, American History Stamps. And uh, I, I love these. There was one on pirates and there was one on the presidents. This is uh, done in 1955, and you go through it, and it's an interpretation of American history. And it's interesting for what's in there, but it's also interesting for what's not in there. Uh, for example, uh, uh, there's nothing about the history of, of, of African Americans in America. Uh, the only woman mentioned in here is uh, Sacagawea, and just barely mentioned. And, what we learned was, I think, a good foundation, but so much of our history was, was not told. And I also, some of you may remember these landmark books. I was a member of the Landmark Book of the Month Club. And um, I love these books, but they were very much like this. I think history, the history taught today is richer, is fuller, it's more complex, and in some ways it's, it's, um, um, it can create controversy, but I'm not sure that's necessarily bad. One last thing I will say, this institution is a perfect example. Never in the history of the human race has a society and a people gathered and protected and preserved its history than what we do in the United States. Starting with the Library of Congress and the National Archives down to the local historical society. Think what this nation has done in preserving its documentary and its material culture. There's, there's nothing like it. And Paul, you told me you have 28 new air conditioning units in here. Do you all feel cool? Yeah. But it's also preserving those collections. So, I mean, I could go on and on about this, but I think in many ways, history is better off than it has ever been. Is it perfect? No. But thanks to organizations like this, I feel much more, um, the, the glass is half full rather than half empty. You know, one of the essays in your book, you talk about revisionist history. Yeah. And, and that can be, it's often thrown around as a dirty word, but yeah. you don't see it as a dirty word. No, I think people say that's revisionist history. That's great. What if, if we did not revise history based on new information and new, new facts that were presented to us, or, or the way we look at the past? Uh, there would be no need to write new biographies if, if there was no revision of, of that subject. Why, why, why learn? Something that, I mean, why do, uh, look at it in a different way. Um, revisionism uh, is, I, I'll give you a perfect example. Elizabeth Pryor, who uh, was tragically killed here, she came out with a new book on Robert E. Lee about three, three years ago, Reading the Man. And much of that was based on that collection of letters we acquired here at the Historical Society, which provided wonderful new insights into Robert E. Lee and she took that, and that new information and came up with a revised history of it. And I think that was um, um, a, a great um, advance in our understanding of Lee. So revisionism, I think, is, is misused. People use it as a pejorative, and it's not. Uh, history should be revised. And what 
should not happen is twisting the facts or, uh, or using the facts to prove an argument that, that they, the, the facts just aren't there to, to back it up. Well, now, you call the book Imperfect Past. Yeah. What led you to that title? Well, I, of course, it's the verb tense, um, past perfect. And I thought about doing past imperfect, but some three other books have taken that title. <laughs> <laughs> then I started thinking about it, imperfect past. Nobody had used that title, and, and I thought about it. That is a good description. Uh, we think of the past quite often as the good old days, mm -hmm. that things were somehow better in the past. You take a VMI graduate, it's not like it was in the old core. <laughs> and um, meaning somehow that it was better when we went and, right. and the place is going to hell in a handbasket. And as Colonel uh, Doc Carroll said one time, uh, VMI ain't what it used to be and it never was. <laughs> and we tend to look at the past, I think, through rose-colored glasses, the, the so-called good old days, and there were many aspects of the past that were, um, we, we would like to re recover. Um, we're in an age now where, where the pace of life is much quicker. Uh, we, we are inundated with, with electronic messages. Uh, kids today are on their, you know, there, there's a lot that, there are things that are not very positive about modern life, but how many of us would actually like to go back to the good old days? Take me, for example, I've been diagnosed with Parkinson's for. 11 years. If I went back to the good old days, um, I couldn't, couldn't operate. Many of you sitting in this room, uh, thanks to modern health care, are able to live a fuller and much more productive life. And just like today, life isn't perfect. And the past is far from perfect. There were imperfect people. Imperfect things happen. And I think we need to look at that imperfect past and, and see what we can learn. And I hope it can guide us uh, in going forward into the future, at least trying to achieve perfection, which I think is nearly impossible. But I think that in, describes um, the looking at the past. It's far from perfect. It's a good thing we don't think about medicine as revisionist medicine, right? No. <laughs> Get the way. <laughs> I don't want any of it. No. I mean, but, you know, leech suppliers, they went right out of business. So... <laughs> Set up a bleeding station. Exactly, exactly. Well, speaking of imperfect past, you know, you open the book with something that is um, touches on the that that very topic and uh, a very bold premise mm -hmm. that slavery caused the Civil War. Mm -hmm. Now, a recent poll of um, American adults said that a majority uh, reject that argument. Now, what what do you say when someone says that slavery? Uh, was not the primary cause of the war. I argue, I think, with most scholars that without slavery, I don't think there would have been a civil war. Um, uh, there are several arguments that are, are put forward for the civil war. It was about states' rights. Mm -hmm. It was about two different civilizations of, of urban north and industrialized, increasingly industrialized north and an agricultural south, difference in population and so on and so forth. But slavery, to me, is the root cause. And there are a number of ways of, of, of explaining that. One, it was the, the solid base of the Southern economy. More capital was tied up in the institution of slavery than any other part of the, the Southern economy. Slaves were, uh, it was a great deal of wealth tied up in, in um, slavery. Second, the South 
perceived, particularly uh, many people in the North, as being anti-slavery. And it is argued by some people that because um, most Southerners didn't own slaves, they, why would they have supported the war if it was about slavery? Well, for one, they saw slavery threatened, the Southern economy threatened by the abolition of slavery. And second, there was a degree of social control over slaves. As long as they're enslaved, they do not have the freedom to move and act, and they're not as a threat to me in terms of a job or in terms of, 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 of competition for work. Mm -hmm. Abraham Lincoln was presented as an abolitionist. And um, when the can't, you can't imagine politicians exaggerating certain no. aspects of somebody, but come on. Um, Lincoln said, I am not an abolitionist. I'm against the spread of slavery into the territories, and I will not threaten slavery in the South. But when he was elected, beginning with South Carolina and then states of the lower South, they began to lead the Union, and they eventually formed the Confederate States of America. Every one of those states, every one of the, the 11 states that seceded had a secession convention. Every one of those secession conventions had minutes. You go through and read the minutes of each of those 11 uh, um, conventions. Every one of them, it comes into the forefront that this is for the defense of slavery. You take the Confederate Constitution. It's almost a carbon copy of the U.S. Constitution, except that it guarantees the protection of the institution of slavery. And um, you, President Alexander uh, Stevens, talked about this Constitution. He said, this will guarantee this nation was formed uh, to keep the Negro enslaved. And um, there's enough evidence there that slavery permeates those conversations and those debates that if you take some slavery away, I, I just don't think it would have, um, mm -hmm. it, it, it would not have happened. Mm -hmm. I, I see no reason for them to go to war. Certainly when they did, I mean the timing. Exactly. <laughs> Changing gears a little bit, um, you have a selection in this book titled The Way Things Were. And you uh, open that section. This is kind of following along a little bit about what we talk, talked about, about the, the, the change in how history is taught. Well, Virginia's changes in the 20th century. Um, what were some of the changes that took place in that 100-year period? And what are we living with today as a result? How did they change us as a people? Uh, we handed out a quiz, by the way, and I'll probably give away some of the answers to the right. quiz. <laughs> what do you think is number one? Air conditioning. Um, you look at the American South from 1900 to 1950. The American South had a net loss of population. From 1950 to the year 2000, it urbanized and its population grew more than any other section of the country. And you can tie that directly to the spread of air conditioning, who ironically was uh, developed by a, a New York City engineer named Willis Carrier. And he came up with a way of removing moisture from the air. It's not so much the heat, it's the humidity. And what was happening, uh, it, yeah, it's not the heat, it's the humidity. Um, Lithographic companies were um, having to shut down in the summertime because of so much moisture content. Anyway, he applied it to factories, and then little by little, it was uh, applied to commercial, uh, to theaters and, and uh, restaurants. And finally, after World War II, people be began to buy air conditioning units. And it truly transformed the South. And many of you sitting in here grew up without air conditioning. 
And we know how it has changed. And I argue there would be no modern Atlanta, no modern Orlando, Birmingham, um, Houston, Las Vegas, you name it, or Phoenix, without air conditioning. So that's one. Two are the interstate highway system, which uh, was approved by President Eisenhower, modeled very much after the Autobahn system in, in Germany. And it fundamentally transformed America. Uh, it enabled us to, to move much more quickly. It took longer and it was more expensive to build, but that truly changed Virginia and the South. And then one other thing uh, relating to Virginia was the role of the federal government. Um, prior to World War II, Virginia uh, had been reluctant to embrace uh, particularly the New Deal under uh, President Roosevelt. Uh, Governor Byrd and, and later Senator Byrd kept uh, the New Deal at arm's length from Virginia. But when war broke out in Europe in 1939, and in even before we entered in 1941, Virginia began to rely very heavily on the defense contracts. And you think about this, the world's largest building was opened in 1942 in Virginia. What was it? <laughs> Pentagon. I mean, that is symbolic in itself. You had Radford Arsenal, um, Newport News um, sh uh, um, shipbuilding, and Virginia goes into high gear in terms of its ties to the war. The war ends in 1945. We very quickly enter the Cold War, and Virginia stays very much involved in the defense industry. As a matter of fact, next to Texas, Virginia had more war con uh, Defense Department contracts than any other state. And that has, it greatly explains the, uh, uh, the changes in Virginia and has been the backbone of the Virginia economy. Of course, there's a great deal of concern is those federal contracts are, are reduced, mm -hmm. how it will affect Virginia. But it has played, that to me, that is, uh, that and air conditioning there. <laughs> and what about social, social change in the 20th century? Uh, oh, absolutely. Um, Virginia is, was in many ways in the forefront of the civil rights movement. Um, we think when you ask people about the civil rights movement, I think they tend to think of Selma and Birmingham. But things were happening here in Virginia, the Moton School down in, in Farmville, Virginia, mm -hmm. began early protests. And of course, we had massive resistance. That's a full decade before what was going on in Alabama and Mississippi. Mm -hmm. And um, that really got started in Virginia. Uh, Virginia changed more in the 20th century than um, the three uh, centuries um, combined. And when I was here, I used to say, we in Virginia tend to forget there's any history after Appomattox. <laughs> and, we, and, and as you know, we, right. we launched a, a big effort to collect the 20th century, right. and particularly World War II history. Right. Well. Speaking of these, um, these big topics, let's narrow it down a little bit. You've written almost 80 yeah. of these columns yeah. for the Times-Dispatch. Mm -hmm. I know plenty of people wait for Sunday to read them. They look forward to them. I always, always do, and I always hear from people who've read them. How do you pick your topics? Are they? I'm, I've, I'm on a walk. Um, I'm in the shower. <laughs> um, I'm driving, and something will come on the radio. And I'll think, yeah, that might make an interesting topic. My, um, my office neighbor, Sam Witt, lives close to me. He came to me and was telling me about uh, Sir Moses Ezekiel, uh, the sculptor who was the VMI Newmarket cadet. And was, I said, yeah, that, that might make an interesting topic. And I did some more research on him. And, and uh, thanks to the Internet, that is, you can find out so much about so, so many subjects. So I like to do a variety. I've done 20, about 20% of them are Civil War. I was a Civil War specialist. 
But um, one thing that helped me, Paul, is that I taught survey American history early in my career, and that helped me I've become familiar with a lot of topics in American history. Mm -hmm. And um, that's one of the reasons I try to do a variety. And I see myself, to some extent, like teaching a freshman survey American history. Except most of your students' eyes are open yeah. when <laughs> they're getting the lesson. I hope they're open when they read my column. <laughs> well, now, you have uh, used on occasion what those of us practicing historians uh, are often warned against, and that's counterfactual history. Yeah. That may not be a term that you're familiar with. What you Please define it and then give us an example of how you use it and how it's useful. It was used as a teaching technique. What would have happened if the South had won the Civil War? What if Lee had had a platoon of tanks at Gettysburg, you know? <laughs> Pickett's charge would have looked different. Yeah, it would have been better. <laughs> but it's, it's taking history and playing with it. And to me, my favorite, and I, I love writing this essay, was America Flipped. And this was a technique used by the great uh, geographer Carl Sauer at the University of California at Berkeley. And his first class with his geography students, he said, Art, imagine. What if the U.S. were flipped? That the East Coast is where the West Coast is and the West Coast is where the East Coast is. And what would have happened if people had come from Europe? What would they have found? Well, if, they, if it had been flipped, you would have come into a very mild Mediterranean-like climate in, in southern, the southern portion of the United States. You would have gone up to see what uh, it would be very similar to Oregon and Washington State. And it would have been a very pleasant um, and very good environment. But then, bam, you would have hit the, the Rockies and the Cascades. You would have had this big mountain barrier. And then once you got across that, you had what was called the Great American Desert, the, the Great Plains. And it wouldn't be to another 900 to 1,000 miles that you would reach the Mississippi River in the environment that we're familiar with here. And it would have been very different. And his point was this, that geography can influence history. In the layout of the of the the, con the continent in the United what would become the United States, perfectly fit the, for uh, the growth of a of a, a big and powerful and wealthy country like the United States. So it, it's it's taking a look, and I think it, it's good for the imagination. And again, the point was that geography can uh, affect history. Mm -hmm. But there are any number of other examples of that. Sure, sure. Well, now you know you're. Your essays range from big picture things to things that are very personal. Yeah. Um, I'm really struck by the one where you talk about your grandfather and you talk about race yeah. and how you grew up in a very different South than we're in today. Would you just expound yeah. a little bit on that? Because I think that's really valuable here to hear. It's, it's an essay I, I've titled, I Once Was Blind. And it, I open it with a wonderful photograph that my brother-in-law, who, who was not married to my sister at the time they were engaged, took of my grandfather and his good friend, Mr. Roy Webb, who was African-American. And they're sitting on the front porch. And I can remember, uh, and as a child, I called him Roy. Mm -hmm. And so, uh, I mean, it's a wonderful picture. But I grew up in this a blissful life in this small town of Macmillan. We call it Macmillan. Um, and it was a very happy childhood. And I, I wouldn't trade it for anything. Then a few years ago, I read a book by Carl Rowan, and you may remember he was a columnist for the Washington Post who served as ambassador to Denmark, a very distinguished African-American 
of figure in, in Washington. And he grew up in Montgomery. And he, I read his memoir. And his was not a happy time in Montgomery. He lived in a part of town uh, in which the, one was, uh, lived on a street called Congo Street. And um, uh, they were names that were not particularly um, um, complimentary of the black community. They went to Bernard High School, which was a poor, rundown school. He was not allowed to check out books from the library. Um, there were just, it was a different McMinnville that he grew up in. I never knew him. I never knew he existed until I read that book. And I remember looking back on it, and I said, I was blind to this. I was blind that Mr. Webb came to our house, but I called him Roy, even though he was in his 70s. We called all the janitors by their first name. Um, um, I did, um, Mr. Was it Mr. Ramsey? And they, um, when Roy Webb would come to visit my grandfather, he would always go to the back door. And I came from a family in which the N-word was forbidden. We couldn't use it. It was not allowed. My father was a musician and composer and found this young man who was, uh, um, I think, had great talent, but it wasn't being used. And he and my mother worked with him to help him, and he eventually had a piece, his premiere at Royal Albert Hall in, in London. Mm -hmm. So I came from, uh, I think, a, an enlightened family, but I still, we were still blind to this other side of life that existed. And it wasn't until I became more educated and learned that I was blind to this, mm -hmm. and that thank goodness things have changed. Mm -hmm. That um, it, and it is far, it's far from perfect. Mm -hmm. And that was an example of an imperfect past of growing up in a town and not being aware of things that were perceived by many people as, as being less than ideal. Sure. Yeah. Now, growing up in small town, MacMinnville, Tennessee. Mm -hmm. How on earth did you become a Baltimore Orioles fan? <laughs> I was in Miss Cantrell's fourth grade, and we were studying songbirds. And my favorite, <laughs> we, we had to, and she picked the songbird for us, and mine was the Baltimore Oriole. And about yeah. the same time, I started collecting baseball cards. Mm -hmm. My best friend, John Smith, was a big Yankee fan, and Tommy McGee was a big Dodger fan. And, and John had, you know, Mickey Mantle and Moose Scour and, 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 you know, and, but I loved it. And I found out there was a baseball team named the Baltimore Oreo. And for some reason, study of songbirds and collecting baseball cards. <laughs> and I, I got Gene Woodling and Mel Pappas and, and Marb Breeding and eventually my great hero, Brooks Robinson. And I remember fantasizing as a child that Brooks lived in Arkansas, and I said, wouldn't it be great if he had to come home and he drove through McMinnville and his car broke down? <laughs> <laughs> and I could help him. <laughs> and I finally met him many years later, and I told him that story, and he, he, he laughed. But uh, I've been an Orioles fan. They've not been playing very good ball here lately. But, but it's funny how something like that can... And my son has become a huge Orioles fan. That's passed on to him. But your daughter has not. No, she's a big Atlanta Braves fan, although she's been a suffering Braves fan. <laughs> and speaking of my daughter, I, I, I put her, that essay she wrote on the, the tragic incident in, in, in Connecticut a couple of years ago. And she's a graduate of the United States Naval Academy. And I think it's an insightful essay 
and how she was trained at the Naval Academy that you look out for your troops and you sacrifice and how those brave teachers did something that any that they were all taught at the Naval Academy. It, it, I read that and I sent it down to the Times-Dispatch and I, they published it immediately. It's a powerful essay and I wish she could be here today, but uh, she was not able to be here. This is the incident, Sandy Hook. That Sandy Hook School, yeah, in, she's in talking about the man. And, and I urge you to read that one. It's, it's a powerful piece. Well, speaking of the essays in your book and the essays that you especially like, Alethea's probably would be on this list, yeah. but if you had to pick, oh, I don't know, four or five of your favorites, what would they be? One is, is the uh, art of letter writing dying. And this came to me. We were, we were doing what I call an attic jihad. We were cleaning up the attic. And um, <laughs> we got, you know, you get out there and what are we going to do with this? We, we can't throw it away and we'll just put it back there and let our children worry about it after we got <laughs> But I came upon this box of letters that I'd forgotten about. And they were, I was a cadet at BMI and Cammie was a, um, a student at Mary Baldwin. And it started in the spring of, of, of my rat year all the way up to through my VMI cadetship. And I started reading these and her letters back and forth. And of course, it's letters of a young couple falling in love. But we're commenting about life at VMI and the war in Vietnam was hanging over us. And it, it, it was just fascinating reading. Things I'd forgotten completely about. And Tammy said, you know, we, we've got to get this attic cleaned up. I said, well, there's one more letter I've got to read. <laughs> and um, they were fascinating. And what happened? Uh, of course, we got married, and I quit writing letters. But we stopped writing letters. <laughs> Remember when, you know, long-distance phone calls? You know, it was three minutes, and they were expensive, and we just didn't make them. So what we, most of us did, we wrote letters, lots and lots of letter, letters. But something happened. The makeup of Ma Bell in the early 1980s uh, led to the reduction in long-distance rates. And you remember Reach Out and Touch Someone was the commercial? And so we started calling people rather than writing. And um, how many of us write letters to lots of people every day? Very few of us do. We make cell phone calls, but do we sit down and write out what we said? And do we have the emotion in those letters? We, we send a lot of emails, but they're quick and they're ephemeral. And I, it concerns me that in the future, what will historians have to, to base their interpretation on? And um, I don't know, I, I don't save my emails, or some of them I print out, but they're very rare. So All I right. think that, that's, that's one of my favorites. Um, I, I love, and I guess these are very personal. One is called Traveling in Style. I found the diary that I kept in 1962 when I went with my Uncle Clyde and Aunt Josephine in their 1959 Cadillac, which was gargantuan. <laughs> Had those huge tail fins and the bejewel back. And my cousin Bill and Becky and I rode out west and went to the Seattle World's Fair. We left from Hattiesburg, Mississippi and went across the country. And that diary was fascinating because it was before the interstates. And 90% of motels at that time were independently owned. So you'd drive and drive and you get to a town and hope you'd find a motel that was, you know, didn't say, um, say no vacancy. Or, so you didn't know where you would stay. And, and there were no chain restaurants in those days. Uncle Clyde said the best places are the uh, truck stops, which was a dubious. <laughs> and, um, and, and I talk about that. I, I describe that trip. And 
it brought back a lot of memories. And that changed when a man named Kevin Wilson in Memphis, Tennessee, came up with the idea of making every hotel the same. And he, he came up with a Holiday Inn concept. And he said the best uh, surprise for anyone on a trip is no surprise. And he said, I want uh, a Holiday Inn in the country within driving distance, one day driving distance throughout the country. And, of course, it took off like, like gangbusters. And then soon after that were chain restaurants. And that was a fun one to write. And, and I say, I, I concluded by saying I'd rather have a good breakfast like I had in uh, uh, Valentine, Nebraska one morning as opposed to a plastic uh, ware and styrofoam plates at the, day, uh, you know, the Hampton Inn. With, right. So that, that was a fun one to write. Yeah, and that actually touches back on that theme of good old days versus yeah. today. I mean, you know, the homogenization of America. And that. Well, thank goodness that Cadillac was air conditioned. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. You remember when, when before you got air conditioning, many cars, and you'd be in the city, and you you go at a stoplight, and you were just, and then some guy would pull up in a Cadillac next to you with his windows all open, I mean, uh, uh, closed, and sitting there in cool comfort and caused a lot of angst and jealousy. Yes. Willis, Willis Carrier is a, is a favorite person, I think, of all of us at this point. Um, well, you know, you picked your favorite essays. I, I'm going to ask you, I think politicians often show a remarkable lack of historical understanding. <laughs> really? <Yeah. laughs> so if you, if you could take one of your essays to be required reading for our current Congress, which one would it be and why? Uh, listen, that's, that's a tough one. I mean, how many of you think, how many of you think Congress needs a history, could use a history lesson? Okay. All right, so you're, you're with us here. I don't think Southern food would do. No, probably not. <laughs> um, I think I would have them read The Civil War Should Not Be Celebrated. Okay. And I make the point that I've heard this statement a lot. We're getting ready to celebrate the Civil War sesquicentennial. Mm -hmm. We're going to celebrate it. And, and that really grated on me. This is not a celebration. This is 620,000 American. Maybe, young, maybe more. Who uh, maybe more, yeah. And if you convert that to today's population, it's the equivalent of losing six, six million. Failure of politicians in, in politics caused that war. And um, I, I lay the blame at their feet. And I lay out some of the, the decisions they didn't make and some that they mm -hmm. should have made. And I think we are so often jump into things with, without thinking. Mm -hmm. And that would be the one I would have them read, that this, this was a huge mistake and it's a failure of the system in politics. And look what happens when you stop compromising. That's right. Absolutely. And, and stop talking to the other side, and that's exactly what happened. Well, I think I'd be remiss if I didn't follow that up, though, and say, what are your thoughts about the current Confederate flag controversy? Well, it's, uh, I'm, I, I can't say I'm surprised by it. I mean, this pops up um, sure. periodically every four or five years. And, of course, the tragic incident in, in um, Charleston precipitated that. The Confederate flag has become a symbol that has, I think, become anachronistic. And I'll give you a, a couple of other examples. 
I looked at a Boy Scout manual from the early, uh, in the late 1920s. Boy Scout salute used to be this. But it was changed to this. You know why? Heil Hitler. But you look at early manuals, and this is the Boy Scout salute. Uh, the swastika was a perfectly legitimate ancient symbol. You look at old Navajo drawings, and it was used, and it was used any number of ways. It was, became a symbol of hate. And I, the Confederate flag, um, for whether, you know, whatever your side, has become a symbol of hate. I remember being in Germany. Uh, Cammie and I were in Germany a few years ago, and there was a, a skinhead group uh, that were protesting something, and they were carrying Nazi and Confederate flags. And that, to me, indicates that it had become a symbol. You didn't talk about being part of our heritage or whatever, mm -hmm. but it has become a symbol of hate, much like this and, and much like the swastika. Uh, I do have trouble with the talk of removing the um, monuments from Monument Avenue. I think they, they tell a story of the Civil War, but they tell a story about the time in which they were put there. And I think of, um, um, I saw a recent proposal that have an interpretation at each one of those. Talk about A.P. Hill, but talk about the erection of the statues and what that represented at the time and let them be a, a, a learning lesson. I heard one proposal is take them, take them down and let people um, rent those spaces out and they can put their own statue up. <laughs> and somebody running for office, you know, can. Sure. Are, are changing the heads. I don't think that's so serious. Well, D Donald Trump might want to. <laughs> our friends, D David Cross and Natalie Holla came up with a good idea. You can make bobbleheads. Uh, yeah. But um, I, I, I think it goes too far in, in, in some cases. Uh, George Washington was a large slaveholder. Do we change the name of the nation's capital? And I think we need to be careful. And in the essay I had in last Sunday's paper is about sanitizing and erasing history. We need to look at history warts and all. And once we try to erase the past, I, I think we're, we're headed for trouble. Well, I think we are too. So um, you all had quizzes. How do you think you did? You know, You're going to find out? Yeah, the point of that quiz is uh, you have people, you know, kids today don't know their history. Um, let's see how you did. <laughs> All right, so Charlie and I are going to trade off. Yeah. You want, you want to go first? Okay, I'll go first. Um, from declaring its independence in 1776 until the ratification of the Constitution, the U.S. operated the government under what? Articles of Confederation. Yep. All right. And it was a robust, strong document, folks. I'll tell you, it was oh, yeah. very successful. Well, which one of the following pairings of early American statesmen led to a deep philosophical and political split, split about the federal government? Jefferson and, Hamilton. Jefferson and Hamilton. A lot of A's going in this class right now, Charlie. Yeah. Uh, adopted in 1823, Congress, uh, the blank, uh, stated that further involvement of European countries, so on and so forth. What are we doing? Monroe Doctrine is absolutely correct. A good Virginia president. According to many scholars, which one of the Amer following American presidents was the most successful in these goals? Enlarging the boundaries of the United States, reducing tariffs, and reestablishing 
an independent treasury. Polk Mr. Polk's War, that little war we had with Mexico. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Virginia was the birthplace of eight American presidents. Who comes in second? Ohio. And you, you could count, they claim Harrison, but Harrison was born in Virginia. One of them. William Henry Harrison. Right. And we'll tell you later to receive the extra points. <laughs> During the Civil War, what was the act that, that created Virginia Tech, Virginia State? Moral, moral, moral Act is correct. I have a buddy from Ohio, and I joke with him that Ohio, they, they call about Ohio is the mother of presidents. I said the mother of mediocre presidents, but that's... <laughs> I'm sorry if you're an Ohioan, but come on now. Be what? honest. So which of the following Supreme Court decisions upheld laws that instituted racial segregation? Plessy v. Ferguson, a Louisiana case. You've got a lot of people taking classes here. Yeah, see, well-informed, well-informed group. Which of the following was not a hallmark of Woodrow Wilson's presidency? See, the beginning of the interstate highway system. Which one of the following U.S. presidents did not die while serving in office? Chester Arthur. Right. Yeah. He's, he followed them. He did. Yeah. Okay. Uh, which one of the following developments did more to cause the American South to grow? <laughs> if you missed this one. Yeah, you're... <laughs> All right, I've got to tell you one. I, I had one in here that of the 12 wars that America, our major engagements that America was involved in, only three were on American soil. My daughter read that, and she said, that's not right, Daddy. Well, let's see if they can get. Yeah. What were the three that I was thinking of? There are 12 American conflicts, three of which I said were fought on American soil. Revolution, War of 1812. You put a plant in the front row. Civil War. But you, but right here, my daughter said, Daddy, have you heard of Pearl Harbor? And I said, oh, you're right. So I took that. Remember, she went to the Naval Academy, yeah. folks. She's obviously smart. How could she forget? And then, Paul's the bonus question, Lee County, Virginia is closer to many other state capitals in Richmond. How many? We counted. we counted them up here. Let's make sure we get this right. You know, get, Lee is that far southwest county. I get eight, folks. Charleston, West Virginia. Columbus, Ohio. Indianapolis. Oh, didn't know that one. Frankfort, Kentucky. Nashville, Tennessee. Atlanta, Georgia. Atlanta, it's a long way away. Raleigh, North Carolina and Columbia, South, South Carolina. Carolina. We live in a big state, folks. We sure do. How did you do? How many got A's? What's an A? Uh, if you got at least eight right. Congratulations. People just don't know history like they used to. I know, they just don't. <laughs> Kids these days. Well, we have a few minutes left, and I would love for Charlie to take a question or two if you have them. We have two microphones, one on either aisle. So raise your hand high. We have one starting right back there. We have one down here in the front row. If 
Good we to see you. We have a spare microphone. It's right there. Bryan. Walt, Walt Pulliam. Your uh, okay, essays are wonderfully well written, very enjoyable. Thank you. One of the things you seem to do is take a, a historic event, mm -hmm. put it in some kind of context or backstory, uh -huh. and then draw lessons from it. With you're a trained historian, but there are fewer and fewer uh, students going into history and the liberal arts. Will that capacity to put things into context be diminished in the long term? I, I, I'm really not sure I can answer that. Um, I, was I, I did my training at the University of Tennessee, and we were told to look at events in, in a different light. And that's one of the reasons I came up with that essay, that what are the lessons we can learn from this? And I, I have an essay in there called What Makes Great Teachers Great? And one is they have a love of the subject. Two, they challenge their students to look at things in a different way. And they provide perspective, and they try to make that subject relevant to them today. And there's some other characteristics as well. And I've tried to do the same in my articles. Um, to take air conditioning, for example, we t most people take it for granted. But there's another side. It greatly transformed this nation. And I hope that the graduate students coming out of the programs now will, will have those different perspectives and, and follow that example. It makes it so much more interesting. Uh, I'm, I'm by no means a Carl Sagan, but I think Carl Sagan, one, his, his great con contribution was taking a very complex subject like astronomy and making it understandable to the layperson. And history can be very complex, and that's what I've, I'm, again, I'm no Carl Sagan, but that's what I try to do with my columns is to open eyes and make you look at things in a different way. And I hope other people uh, can, can follow that example. And you hope to write billions and billions. billions. In the <laughs> one, one, yes. No, go, I'm sorry, go ahead. Just a point of information, but a question too. Yeah. Uh, if you, the uh, swastika, yeah. is the ancient Chinese uh, symbol for prosperity. And of course it was adopted by the Nazi party of Germany. And That's the Navajo used it. They, yeah. Um, the, uh, you mentioned uh, in when you first started off about the uh, Civil War, the war between states, the, uh, you said that um, there was a great deal of capital that was uh, involved as far as slavery was concerned. And I can see that that would be true. Mm -hmm. And uh, with that capital, but I wondered also too if uh, there might not have been other financial things, uh, perhaps pressure from the north as far as uh, desiring cotton and that thing from the from the south, where they were shipping it actually shipping it over to England for uh, finished goods and so forth. And I wondered if other financial things may not have been heavily involved in, which would cause though what you later referred to as the mistakes. That the politicians were making. Well, it's, it, are you raising? Everybody heard the question. It's interesting that many northern capitalists, particularly industrialists in New England, were dependent on southern cotton. They, for the most part, were opposed to the war a, at the beginning, and so there was um, there was no sympathy for the North going to war as far as they were concerned. So there is a tie there between the southern economy and the northern economy. But again, remember, the southern economy was based on slave labor. And, one, you know, there were something like 20 slave auction houses here in Richmond. A slave worth $1,000 here in Richmond could be sold for two and three times that amount in New Orleans. It was a big business. And the election of Lincoln was perceived as a threat 
and they'll do away with, with my, the business. And it, it, it um, was a huge factor. In 1860, the investment in slaves was second only to investment in land mm -hmm. in the United States. Mm -hmm. It was Which huge. Is pretty staggering. Other questions? We've got a couple hands up here. Always thought that if you took a history class in Palestine and then you took a history class in Israel, yeah. you'd get two different histories. If, you know, there's a lot of change and debate in current history classes and what to put in textbooks, mm -hmm. do you think that there's any change in the political, personal, religious bias that's being put or how we're being taught history? Um, I, I don't see that. Um, I think history, frankly, is, is better taught than it was when I went to school. I think teachers are better. It's, it's a much more inclusive and fuller picture of the past than what I received. I think it's, it's more accurate. And um, I think, for one, for better or for worse, teachers are held accountable for teaching the right thing. And um, I know Coach Bartman, he was a nice man, but he, he was not held accountable for what he did. And, um, Except on the football field. Well, that and the Crimean War. But yeah, the Crimean War. <laughs> <laughs> um, but I think it, it, it is taught better than it was, than it was when I was there. And um, one thing, I, I've, heard that, I've heard this several times, that George Washington isn't even in the textbook anymore. He's been totally taken out. I, I had lunch with somebody not too, recent, uh, not too long ago who said that, you know, you know, he's not even in the textbook. Well, I checked. He's still there. <laughs> Big time. And if you look at the standards of learning, he's there big time. I know my, our friends from California say that with the emphasis on STEM, that's science, technology, engineering, and math, that that is beginning to crowd history out of the, the um, curriculum. But it's not an intended, you know, we want to tr uh, people to be more ignorant in, in terms of history. But, you know, people don't know history like they used to. How many of us can remember the details of our economics classes? Or <laughs> Or if you don't use your language uh, very frequently, um, you, you tend to lose it. But people care powerfully about history. They do. It's, it's which very is emotional. great for people like you and yeah. me. Graham, do you have one back there? Uh, or no, over here. Okay. okay. I have two comments. Um, as a um, one who grew up um, sort of when you did and did a lot of letter writing, yeah. I have um, my grandchildren tell me that they don't even teach cursive anymore, so I don't even that's know how true. They, they can do letter writing at this Good point. Grief. But my second point um, on a more serious side is we hear so much about the polarization in this country yeah. and that it is we are becoming more polarized mm -hmm. not only between minority and majority, whatever the majority mm -hmm. is anymore, I don't even know, um, but uh, economically as well. Yeah. And I wonder if you think that some or any of the current policies of our government are making us more polarized. I, I, yes, they are, but this is nothing new. Um, you go back to the time of Jefferson and Andrew Jackson in particular, the parties own the newspapers. You know, people saying Fox is Republican and CNN is Democratic, um, Oregon and that kind of thing. Papers really were bought and owned by the parties. And there was a strict party line there. And the difference is that it, 
members of Congress then were at least willing to compromise, the great compromise of 1850, and they were willing to talk across the aisle. That is what concerns me, is the unwillingness to go reach across the aisle. And that, become, you know, that becomes a huge news item that a, a, a group of Democrats and Republicans actually worked out a piece of legislation. And I mean, it's huge news. That used to be common all the time. My grandfather was a great admirer of Everett Dirksen, and he, he would talk about how he would work with um, 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 Linda Baines Johnson. They would meet and have, and, and that doesn't happen. That does concern me. That is a change. Have time for a couple more. One back there in the, in the middle. Hi. Um, I saw in the news this morning that in Texas, um, some social study textbooks have been rewritten. I believe that um, they're for elementary students, mm -hmm. that for the Civil War, the importance of slavery is being significantly downplayed. And this is going to be the new textbook that the students are going to have starting in the fall. And I was just wondering your, your, your take on that or you know, how, as a society, do we help make sure that people are getting a full picture of history, the good parts and the not-so-good parts. I can't speak for Texas. Uh, um, <laughs> I will uh, say something. I'll, I'll address that. You, have you heard the definition of the most obnoxious person in the world? The Texan who went to VMI who became a Marine. LAUGHTER <laughs> <laughs> uh, that, that, that does disturb me because I think when we begin to whitewash and try to leave the unpleasant aspects of the past, we're making a mistake. Uh, I think every legitimate scholar in the country it can argue, and, and with good evidence, that slavery was the fundamental cause of the war. And they may not like that, but um, I think they're making a mistake. We have time for one final question down here in the front. You know, I think you've raised some excellent points. And one thing that concerns me, our granddaughter goes to school a couple of blocks from the Lee Monument. And until we sat down and talked with her, she wasn't real sure who that Robert E. Lee guy was. And she thought his name was spelled R-O-B-T-E-R-Y, Robert E. Robert E. So, um, but I think, that, I think the importance of us always learning as much as we can about our history is being illustrated right now in this whole thing about the Confederate flag and the statues. Without that background, without that knowledge, without understanding all sides of it, we fall victim to the knee-jerk reaction. And I th unfortunately, not all politicians, but too many politicians are part of, oh, that happened, here's our immediate reaction. And if we don't do what uh, Jim Webb suggests and look at it carefully, we, we fall victim to that. Very good point. And that's why institutions like the Virginia Historical Society are so very important. They tell a complete story. They collect it. They make it available. And this is a free and open society. People can come here and learn and without censorship. You look at totalitarian societies, the Soviet Union, China, most recently ISIS. They, they destroy the past. They manipulate it. We are so lucky in this country that we have what I call freedom of the past. We have free access to learn from the past, warts and all, and we are so very, we may not agree on whether slavery caused the Civil War, but at least we can make that argument without somebody telling us that we can. So, so we're lucky to be, um, to have an imperfect past and 
not necessarily agree on. Well, and I think you'll agree we're lucky to have Charlie Bryan. Yeah. <laughs>